This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. Today we're going back in our archive to 2014 and we have a theology hangout to bring you today. We were joined by Liam Thatcher and Liam is talking about how we can know God's character. You can find this full hangout including a Q&A with Liam and all the notes on what he had to say at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 16. Now, I should let you know that at various points in this hangout, we do have some sound difficulties, but you can hear most of what Liam is saying to us and what he brings is just so good that we wanted to bring you this material anyway. So without any further delay, here is Liam Thatcher talking about knowing God's character. It's kind of hard to know really where to start because I think the character of God is so broad. There are so many things we could talk about and it also affects so many other areas of theology, many of which I'm sure you'll pick up in um, other weeks. So I think the character of God affects the way we think about revelation, how we know anything about him, about truth, about um, God's character, God's plan. It affects things like the Trinity, um, how many gods are there, are the different elements of God, if I can put it like that. I wouldn't usually put it like that, but for the sake of the argument, are the different parts of God different or the same, or do they have the same characteristics? And it kind of matters when you think about the character of God. It affects the way you think of the Trinity. Uh, It affects the way we think about Scripture. How do we know that Scripture faithfully and truthfully tells us uh, genuine, accurate things about the character of God? So I don't think that you can really understand any area of theology of believing in God or thinking about God without having at least some basic presuppositions about the character of the God that we are talking about. So C.H. Spurgeon says this, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. The highest science, the loftiest speculation. So uh, in other words, C.H. Spurgeon says that the subject we are looking at today is the most important subject uh, you could possibly ever look at. So you might as well not bother with any of the other this is the most important one and it's on the character of God I think that knowing about the character of God affects every area of our lives as Christians um, it really does every area I mean, it affects the way we pray it affects the way we worship it affects the way we make decisions about what is true or what is a priority or uh, ethics or anything like that um, it affects the way we think about world issues or a theology of suffering um, the kind of often raised question how could a good, good God or a God of love allow X, Y or Z is only really actually a problem if you think there is a God of love a good God and so the character of God affects some of the big apologetics um, discussions we might have some of the big objections we might face towards the Christian faith it affects the way we think about eschatology where this world is heading and therefore how do we interpret um, things that are happening around the world right now whether it's violence war um, suffering natural disasters all that kind of stuff the character of the character of God really angry 
pretending that our faith is better be pretty sure we have a good, uh, strong understanding of God's character. And so it's a huge subject with a lot of different ways we could go. And in the handbook, as, as Thomas said, we have two, well, three sections. The first one, it takes a fairly kind of classical approach to the character of God, looks at the attributes of God, and in particular, the communicable and the incommunicable attributes. And it spells that out in the handbook, but we can talk about that in the Q&A later if you'd like to. Uh, the second bit, as Tom said, has lots of brackets and things in the title and what I want to get across there is this sense that many people I think live with the idea there are multiple gods or that God changes and I think it's important to consider well is the character of God consistent uh, and if so how do we account for this apparent difference that we see in the New Testament in the light of Jesus and so that's what it spells out there and the third bit really kind of Christian life and how it shapes us. I hope you'll find it helpful. If you've got questions on any of that, I guess you haven't read it already, but um, we can pick that up later. But I suppose what I want to achieve tonight is a bit kind of more modest, really. I want to make a couple of preliminary comments about um, how we know about God or more particularly how we can, or what we can know about God and how much we can know about God. And then I just want to look at two passages, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, that I think give a good foundation for how we approach the idea of the character of God. And I'm sure we're cover everything we uh, you might expect me to cover tonight but that's why we have q a and uh, we can come back to other things later so first of all what can we know about god just a couple of comments on this um i think the first thing to recognize about god is that we need to um recognize what theologians call the incomprehensibility of god god is incomprehensible and actually when we use that term uh, often in modern life we mean something that is utterly beyond our understanding, something we cannot understand in the least. Um, for example, the appeal of Downton Abbey, you know, no reason at all. I cannot fathom why anyone would like it. It's incomprehensible to me. Um, but actually, theologians, I mean, this is a stupid example, theologians don't mean it in that sense. When we talk about the incomprehensibility of God, we don't mean that we can literally know nothing about him, which is often how the word is used. Rather, we mean something quite particular. Wayne Gruden puts it like this. He says... Because God is infinite and we are finite or limited, we can never fully understand God. In this sense, God is said to be incomprehensible, where the term is used with an older and less common sense, unable to be fully understood. And this sense, he said, must be clearly distinguished from the more common meaning, unable to be understood. It is not true to say that God is unable to be understood, but it is true to say that he cannot be understood fully or exhaustively. So when we come to think about the character of God, I think the first thing we need to realize is really that we cannot know God fully. We cannot know him exhaustively. And there are a whole lot of passages we could look at, and they're in your handbook, I think, uh, that express the depth and unknowability of God's greatness, his ways, his thoughts. For example, Psalm 139, 145, 147, Romans 11, various other passages, all in your handbook. Um, but I think it's important to say that whilst we cannot know God fully, we can know him truly. Whilst we cannot know God fully, we can know him truly. And so the Bible says a number of things about God's character, each of which is 100% true, if they are, but they are not actually 100% percent of the picture if you see 
that distinction. Everything is perfectly true, even though it is not the full picture. For example, uh, 1 John 4 tells us that God is love, and that is totally true, of course, but it is not true to say that we can fully or exhaustively know the full depths of God's love. As simply 1 John 1 says that God is light, but we don't know the full depths of that. Or Romans 3 says that God is just, but we may not know the full depths of God's justice. So when we come to talk about character... Sorry, can I just interrupt you for a second, please? Sorry, it seems like at this end, and I know one of the other groups at least has experienced the same thing, there seems to be quite a lot of um, interference. I don't know if this is common to everyone who's listening, but I know at least a couple of the screens are getting the same thing. Um, I, I don't know what we can do about it at this stage, but I thought it would be worthwhile just mentioning um, if there are others who, who are having the same thing. What I would suggest we do is, is proceed. However, is there any bits that you don't quite get or if um, the interference means that you misunderstand, then feel free just to ask Liam to come back to them maybe at the end during the Q&A. Um, I don't know if there's a lot more we can do than that to clear it up, but... Um, yeah, I, I thought it would just be worth a quick mention. Sorry to interrupt, and yeah, let's resume. That's it. Well, I'm sorry there's interference, and uh, I like that idea that interference might make people not understand. So uh, if you don't understand anything, I'm just going to go, oh, it's just the interference. So uh, <laughs> that's a great get-out clause for me. Um, okay, so what I was saying is essentially that we must hold, when we talk about the character of God, we must hold two things true, that he is in a sense unknowable in that we can't know him fully, but he is also knowable in the sense that everything we can know about him we can know truly. And I think that's quite important. So Herman Babink, the Dutch Reformed theologian, says, God's incomprehensibility does not deny deny his knowability it requires and affirms it the unsearchable riches of the divine being form a necessary and important part of our knowledge of god and that is i think a beautiful and powerful quote and it is in your handbook again so do check it out so there's lots more that could be said about that i'm sure um but let's just get straight into the bible so if you do have a bible with you we may find it helpful to turn to exodus uh, uh, and what I want to do is look at two instances, really, in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, um, of God's self-revelation of his name, his character. Um, and I just want to draw out a few thoughts from them that may help us as we approach this subject of God's character. Um, and we'll see a few things actually about his character as well. So Exodus 33 and 34 is uh, quite the key passage is probably quite a well-known passage where God reveals his name and his nature to Moses at Sinai. Um, and where it comes in story, in chapter 32, the people have got into trouble for trying to make a, um, a calf that uh, is like an image of God, um, which I think is interesting, actually, because it shows that people have this kind of deep desire to see God, to, um, to, to, to look upon him and to know what he is like, even if they, they make the rather stupid mistake of thinking that his face resembles that of a cow, uh, which is a bit, a bit offensive. But uh, after that occurrence, you kind of expect that Moses might think twice about this whole seeing God thing and think, right, I'm done with that because that got us into trouble last time. But actually, that's not what happens. In chapter 33, he explicitly asks to see God. So uh, verses 12 We'll start with verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favour in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found 
found favor in your sight. Please show me now your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Uh, just pause there for a second. I find it fascinating that here, um, first of all, Moses seems to know God. Actually, the will backtrack a little bit. Sorry. Uh, Moses says that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Know you and find favor in your sight. And there seems to be this sense that for Moses, actually looking at the activity, looking at the way he reveals the character. So one of the ways we can know about God is by looking at his activity, which is why I think the psalmists regularly say um, things like, how great you are, Lord, how great are your works, and then they kind of list all the ways God has worked throughout history. It's not just nostalgia, it's because there's this kind of deep-rooted understanding that actually if you look at God's activity, you can tell things about his character. And so Moses starts off and says, show me your ways that I may know you and find favor in your sight. And then verses 14 and 16, Moses essentially says, well, if your presence won't go with me, like, I'm not going anywhere, don't send me out, because what will make me distinctive from the other nations? So he begs God to send his presence, and God promises to do that. In verse 17, he says this, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do for you. I do, sorry, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. A few things about those verses. Uh, God seems to equate intimacy with the knowledge of a name. I think that's interesting. So, he says to Moses, I have known you by name, verse 17. And so God knows Moses intimately before Moses actually knows God intimately, if you see what I mean. So Moses says, or God says to Moses, I have known you by name, before he actually then promises to reveal his name to Moses. Um, I think that to know someone's name in an Old Testament sense um, means more than simple kind of common nomenclature, what do you call them? Um, it means no something of their essence, something of who they really are in their core. And so then in verse 19, where God promises to proclaim his name to Moses, that's more than just saying, like, you'll know what to call me from now on. God's saying, actually, I want you to know something of my person, my inner workings, and me as intimately as I know you. And so actually what we find out about God is that he is a self-revealing God, although he is he doesn't like to stay mysterious. He loves to reveal himself and his character to people. And I want you to notice just the interplay between a number of words here. Uh, Moses asks to see God's glory, and then God promises to pass his goodness before Moses and proclaim his name. And I think that's an interesting interplay between glory, goodness, and name. Uh, I don't know what you think of when you think of glory, maybe like light and power and splendor or whatever and um, but Moses asked to see the glory and God responds by saying I'm going to pass my goodness which is an attribute an aspect of his character before Moses and at the same time proclaim his name and we'll kind of come back to that in just a second but God says he will reveal his name the Lord and it's in capital letters and uh, you may well know this already so sorry if this is just kind of going over the basic ground. But uh, if you ever wonder why sometimes the word Lord is in capital letters, that's a way of telling you in English that it's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, um, often kind of Y-H-W-H. Uh, and the word Yahweh 
is known as the Tetragrammaton, that is the four-lettered name of God, and it's the precious kind of personal name of God. It sums up a lot of his uh, character, I suppose. And it was often thought as being too precious a name to use, despite the fact that there is what people would do is when they got to the Hebrew word Yahweh, rather than saying it, they would try and replace it with another term, uh, for example, Adonai. Um, and that's quite weird. I don't know if you've ever tried sort of reading through a book and every time you get to a particular word, just trying to replace it with another word that's quite hard to do. And so what people did over time was that they took the vowels from Adonai and the consonants from Yahweh and they put the vowels inside the consonants, uh, which is kind of hard to explain without spelling it out. Um, but you can sort of imagine it. It's the vowels from Adonai inside the consonants of Yahweh and uh, with some kind of weird transposition uh, the y sound can be a sort of j, j sound and the w is sort of more of a valve v sort of sound um and so it sounded sort of like jehovah um and that's where we get the word jehovah from it's that combination of adonai and yahweh um which is kind of irrelevant except to say the way he uses the word lord in capital letters this is talking about yahweh the precious personal name of god and god says he's going to reveal this name to moses now obviously at this point he's told him this is my name yahweh so you think well <laughs> that's it in what sense are you going to reveal this name to moses any further but i think is this is an indication really that god is about to reveal more than simply what you call him He's going to reveal something deep about his character. So he finishes the verse saying, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy, which indicates, I think, that Moses did not deserve this revelation from God. It's, it's all a grace thing. And none of us really deserve to know anything about God's goodness and his character. Anytime we receive any revelation from God, that is a gift. It is a grace gift. And there's more we could say about that, I'm sure. But... Um, but we won't. Verse 20 to 23, actually a statement of grace. God says, no one can see my face and live. And so, because uh, I don't want to kill you, Moses, I'm not going to show you my face. I'll show you a portion of me, which is a very kind thing to do. Um, but this indicates, I think, that actually the revelation of God's character that's about to come in chapter 34, which is an amazing experience, is partial. It's limited. And that goes back to what I said earlier, the sense that we can know God truly, but we will not know him fully. It's almost like God adjusts something of his self presentation if i can put it in that kind of language so that moses can perceive him without dying uh, but he in no way alters his character in doing so and so we turn to chapter 34 where i'm going quite fast here but um i hope you're able to keep with me uh chapter 34 um, and the lord says to moses cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and i will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke uh, actually just pause there for a second the Lord says to Moses, I will write on the tablets. But then if, actually, if you skip forward to verse 27, I think it is, um, we're told that he tells Moses to write on the tablets, which I find interesting. I, I kind of noticed this yesterday as I was rereading it, really. Um, God says, I will write, and he tells Moses to write. And some people see that as a kind of contradiction, um, like God has got it wrong or he changes his mind. Actually, I think it tells me really that God doesn't have a problem with the idea of that kind of juxtaposition of human and divine authorship. God seems to think that it's okay that a human can write down things and they can genuinely reflect the mind and the character and the will of God. And that may seem more like a point that's relevant to the doctrine of Scripture, but I think it's relevant to us today because it tells me that 
something may be written by the hand of a human, but we can trust still that is a genuine reflection of the character of God and what he wants to communicate. Verses two to four, God kind of gives Moses preparatory details about how he is to broach. And then verses five to seven, he says this, the Lord descended in the cloud, that's Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear guilty, visiting the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. To hear God proclaims his name as he had promised to do, which seems slightly odd because he's already told him his name. But here, this is God revealing something about the depths of his character. He proclaims Yahweh, Yahweh. And that repetition, I think, does a number of things. It serves to strengthen and heighten the sense of um, prestige of the moment. Um, so often when words are repeated in scripture, that's what's going on there. So when the angels say, holy, 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 they want to say, well, God is not just holy. Uh, he's not even holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. As in God is more holy than you have ever experienced before. It sort of heightens that sense of God's holiness. And I think the same thing is going on here. where God declares his name, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh. But also I think one other thing that is going on here is that God is giving a hint that he is about to reveal more than just a name, actually something of his character. Because the word Yahweh means I am. And so in a sense, God's making this revelation. He says, I am, I am. Or as some commentators put it, I am, and this is how I am, or this is what I am. So this is more than just a name. This is getting to the heart of what it means to be God. Let's just look at those verses again. Verse 6. The Lord Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so as God reveals something about his character, we just see that it's this beautifully rounded picture. It's not just one thing. It's a, a whole rounded picture where every element holds the others in place. So in 1 John 4, we're told that God is love. And that is, of course, 100 percent true. But it is not the whole picture. There are a whole range of things that are equally true about him. So he is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. That's not to say that God never gets angry. He doesn't get angry easily or unnecessarily. So when it does come, it's genuinely provoked. He's not fickle. He's not prone to fits of rage. He is abounding in steadfast love. I love that phrase. He, he doesn't simply have just a little love. He is abounding in love. And the kind of love that he is abounding in is steadfast love. This is a strong statement of the breadth of the love of God. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. 
notice it's easy i think to think about the love of god personally individualistically like he loves me um which of course is true and paul says that in galatians he talks about christ who loved me and gave himself up for me so it is right to think about that but here it says he keeps steadfast love for thousands there is a kind of corporate dimension i think to the love of god it stretches beyond our own personal experience and just as an aside really um I think it's often claimed that uh, the God of the Old Testament is a bit of a kind of grouch, a violent uh, character. In fact, I read, um, I've got it somewhere here. Uh, yeah, I read this quote by um, Christian Vale, which I found fascinating about his new film uh, about Moses. He said this, it's an intriguing piece because it's very few people that I've met that have actually read the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses all the way through. Most people read snippets. If you read it all the way through, it's harsh. It's really Old Testament, he puts in quotation marks, and violent in the extreme. And overlooking the rather dumb fact that he's like, wow, the Torah is Old Testament. Um, I, I just find it baffling that the term Old Testament has kind of become synonymous with violent or bloodthirsty because actually I read a passage like this and I think this says some things that are beautiful and loving about God and some of the most loving depictions of God are found in the Old Testament rather than the New I just found to pick up that idea a little bit in the second part of the notes so I won't dwell on that too much but this is a beautiful picture of God he gives iniquity this is his mercy and his grace in action, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And that combination is vital because I think many of the mistakes we make when we think about the character of God come by playing the different aspects of God's character against each other. Uh, so 1 John 4, 8, of course, says God is love. Um, but sometimes we assume that God is love and um, love wins, uh, let the reader understand. And therefore we play that off against his justice, for example. You say love wins and therefore he can't be just or he can't judge or punish or, or whatever. Actually, you know, we see here a beautiful rounded picture of God's character. He is both merciful and utterly just. He will not let people get away with things. He will uphold justice, but he is merciful and gracious at the same time. Um I'm sure there's loads more we can say about that. And we can come back into it in the questions if you would like. Um, but I just think that as a key passage where God reveals himself to Moses, this is an amazing moment. And it tells us a whole load of things. It tells us that God's character is tied up with his actions and it is tied up with his name. So Moses says, show me your glory. God passes his goodness in front of him he tells him his name and Moses says let me see your actions let me see your ways that I may know you and one of the things actually I didn't say in the notes um, but probably should have done is that um, one of the important things that you could look at if you wanted to explore further the character of God is to look at the name of God not just Yahweh but the other names so God who provides God who heals etc etc and that's another great way of looking at the character of God and that's something that Andrew Wilson does really brilliantly in in his book Incomparable so um, do check that out god displays his character to us through divine revelation and through the written words of human hands um, but even this revelation to moses is a revelation of grace it's not something that moses deserves it's all grace and although we can understand him truly we cannot understand him fully because us fully seeing the face of god would result in our destruction so the character of God cannot be summed up, I don't think, in any one word, in any single attribute, but in the sum of a number of attributes, the perfect combination of love, justice, mercy, graciousness, and so on. 
Okay, that's Exodus. Um, I've spoken very quickly. Uh, I hope you're with me. I realise that I kind of can't really tell if you're okay because you're all muted. But um, I see a thumb. I don't know. That thumb looks like an Oxford thumb. So uh, uh, great. People in Oxford have thumbs. That's all I've learned from that. Um, okay, well, let's, let's go on to the New Testament and then we can come back and um, look at some questions in a bit. Let me just have some water first. Uh, why don't you send to John chapter 1? <clears throat> John 1 is one of my favourite passages of the Bible. Um, I could probably talk on it for hours, um, which I won't. Um, it's kind of like a prologue, really, to the gospel that sets up a number of themes and the language, really, that gets picked up and explained later through the gospel. And um, it's kind of like an overture, I suppose. It introduces a lot of the themes that you will then make sense of as you go through the rest of the book. And actually, I've done a talk on, on John 1 at Christchurch London um, which was one of the most fun ones to do. And I didn't recite anything from a musical, but not far off. So Tom may enjoy it. Uh, do check it out if that would help. It kind of explains a bit about what the author is trying to do here. Uh, but very briefly, the reason I've come to this passage is I think that the author, John, is trying to make a number of allusions to the Old Testament that help us to understand God's character in a new way. So he begins right, right at the beginning, really, by alluding to Genesis 1.1. So, so John begins in the beginning. And, of course, you hear that and you immediately think of Genesis 1. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But it's like John takes that beginning bit from Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's like he breaks it into two parts. And so he goes in the beginning and God over here. Um, and then it's like he just rams a number of words in the middle to show you that he's expanding the Genesis idea of who God is. So in the beginning, God, he rips it apart and he's like, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so it's like he expands upon this foundational understanding of God that has been part of Judaism from the very beginning. And then, of course, he goes on and he talks about everything being created through the word. So as Genesis 1 picks up, uh, in the beginning, God created. This guy says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And this God created. And he goes on to show how Jesus was involved in creation. And um, sorry, I'm going to get carried away if I carry on. But it just shows that he wants to begin by showing you how this God is far bigger than anyone had ever kind of perceived or understood before. And the Jews had five main ways of talking about the activity of God. Um, those were wisdom, law, word, glory, and spirit. And each of those, uh, well, four of them get explicitly referred to in this passage, and the fifth gets alluded to, which um, we'll leave aside for the moment now. Um, but John is just playing with many of the big ideas within Judaism and saying this God that you know, you only know in part, and now you can get to know in more depth. I want to show you about him. Uh, let's look at verses 14 to 18. He says this, The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
So these verses, I think, tell us that at a particular point in history, the word um, and the word who is this being who is with God and is God um, and is sort of somehow related to the activity of God um, took on flesh. And John says, we have seen his glory, verse 14. The word glory there calls to mind references in the Old Testament to the manifestation of the presence of God. And probably some of the stuff that Dave Devonish covered with you last time, actually, I imagine you looked at Eden and the tabernacle and the temple. And uh, did you look at that sort of thing? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So that, yes, thank you. Oxford thumbs again. Uh, great. So they sense of the presence of God, the glory of God going with the people uh, in their various different stages of history. And so when we hear here about the glory of God being revealed through the word, it reminds us of that sort of thing. So Moses went up the mountain in Exodus 24 and, and the glory of God dwelt there. And uh, they built the tent, the tabernacle and Exodus 35 and the glory of God was there. And we told the cloud covered the tent and the glory of Yahweh filled the temple and uh, they built where well, they built the temple later on and that was full of the glory of God and and so on and so on we can go through them all and now we're told that the glory of God through Jesus as he took on flesh the glory of God was revealed in a new way and actually the word used there uh, to express God dwelling amongst us verse 14 uh, could be translated really he pitched his tabernacle his tent amongst us when God himself came to dwell amongst us as he did in the person of Jesus, it was like that moment of the tabernacle where the glory of God came in full. Only this time he was no longer obscured by two veils and inapproachable to all but the high priest. Actually, he was visible, he was tangible to everyone. And John says, we have seen his glory. I think this is quite a remarkable claim because in Exodus 33, this is the very thing that Moses requested to see. He said, show me your glory. And there God permitted Moses to see his glory, but nobody else. And here John says, we collectively, a whole bunch of us, we have seen his glory. So something about Moses' experience now becomes the experience of the early Christians and I think implicitly all who have seen or perceived something of Jesus Remember, when we looked at Exodus 33, God's glory was tied up with his goodness and his name. So Moses asked to see his glory. God promised to pass his goodness before Moses and he revealed his name. And I think that John is saying a similar sort of thing here. Um, he talks about we have seen his glory in Jesus. Oh, I think it is. We see the glory of Jesus, and as that reveals something about God's character, verse 12, all who did receive him who believed in his name. So again, Jesus' own glory, Jesus as the revelation of God, is somehow linked to coming to an understanding of the name of God. I think John is deliberately trying to remind us of Exodus 33 and 34. He said, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, grace and truth. And most commentators you can read on John uh, suggest that John uses this phrase grace and truth in exactly the same way uh, that Exodus 34 uses the phrase steadfast love and faithfulness. So again, this is another way in which John is harking back to that Exodus moment. The glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, displaying that divine goodness characterized by ineffable. Was the very same glory John and 
word made flesh. So this is a real exodus. This is God revealing himself through his activity, through his goodness in bodily form, so that people might believe in his name. Verse 16. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It seems like John is saying there is something different here about the revelation that has come through Jesus compared to the revelation that came through Moses. But I think it's important just to tease out what that difference is. I think many of us, when we think about law and grace, um, are for various reasons sort of conditioned to think that law is a negative thing, a harsh thing, and grace is its opposite. Um, And so we think of law as being negative, but Jesus brought grace, which is good because it means we get rid of the law. Uh, And of course, there's kind of a sense in which that's somehow true, um, but not really. And it's certainly not what is going on here. I don't think it's saying that Jesus is bringing grace, whereas we never had grace before. I think it's saying Jesus brings grace upon grace. There was grace before, and now Jesus brings a greater degree of grace. And part of the reason I think that is because actually the word gave in verse 17, where it says that, um, The law was given through Moses. It implies a gift. It implies a positive thing. It doesn't say the law was inflicted through Moses. It was given. It was a gracious thing. And if you think back to Exodus 34, 33 and 34, that whole thing is just the language of God having grace and mercy runs through the whole thing. So the law was an act of grace. It's just Jesus brings more grace on top of the grace. And actually the word in verse 16 um, it frequently means sort of instead of. So Jesus brings grace instead of grace. So you already had grace anyway, but Jesus brings a greater abundance of grace. So in verses 14, 16, and 17, I think they ask that God's glory, who used to dwell in a tabernacle, now is here in the person of Jesus. That God previously revealed his grace and his truth to Moses. Now he has made his grace and his truth known through Jesus. And God, who previously graciously gave the law through Moses, has now given his grace and truth. But is at the Father's side. He said the word translated has made known is uh, the Greek word exegestato, from which we get our term exegesis. So D.A. Carson says that we might almost say that Jesus is the exegesis of God. Jesus makes God and his character fully known. And that's kind of really the point, that Jesus is the exegesis of God. And I probably could have made that point in about 30 seconds right at the beginning and not have had to waffle for about 40 minutes but uh, i think it's important to see how we get there god has always revealed himself in many ways through his activity through the names he's revealed through the scripture he's allowed to be written but in jesus or the more exegesis of god that is i think you could know something about god apart from jesus which means say i think it's true you could know something about god apart you could make certain statements about 
to my character and be more or less sort of in the ballpark of being without Jesus. Because I think there's a bit of common grace that we all get. And so Romans 1 talks about all having some kind of knowledge of God that we suppress, maybe. But I don't think we can ever fully or truthfully know God until we look at the exegesis of God in the person of Jesus. He brings grace upon grace. And any understanding of the character of God, the character of Yahweh, must take into account the life, work, ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is not, I think, that Jesus has changed the character of God or even altered the character of God. He is executed in a greater degree of fullness. So when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we should see no tension between the revelations of God there. But when we look through the lens of Jesus, we find what God is truly like um, and we get to understand him better. And I think it's important as well just to say that there are still more look at Jesus and get the full picture because again I think even if we saw the face of God in Jesus there would be a sense in which we would still be destroyed because Exodus 33 is still true we cannot see God in his fullness and live and Revelation 22 says there is a time to come in the new creation there is a time to come when will serve him and see his face and there is a day when we will see God's face fully and then we will know him. And actually, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, then we will know him even as we are fully known. But right now, although Jesus is the primary way that we understand and we see God's character, that's not even the full picture. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the exegesis of God. You want to know about God's character? Look at his activity, look at his name, look at his word. But most importantly, look at his word become flesh in the person of Jesus. Well, we hope you enjoyed the hangout and didn't find the sound difficulties too distracted. Just to remind you, you can get all the notes on everything that Liam was saying, plus you can access the Q&A that we had with Liam, all at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 16.